now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Hi, I'm Sahil Handa, and I'm associate editor at Persuasion. I recently wrote a pair of pieces uh, called What the Woke Don't Get About the Old and What the Old Don't Get About the Woke. And essentially, I'm attempting to describe something of a new generational divide that I think is playing itself out with regards to the kind of public conversation about what wokeism is, how widespread it is, what we even mean when we're talking about it, and what woke people believe and what they don't. And so the first piece is basically me saying to a bunch of the people who are, you know, your stereotypical old liberals that one, not many young people, even at the best elite schools are that woke. And I kind of draw upon my experiences at Harvard and how talking to students there has made me think that actually the story that you hear in the media is kind of quite distorted. And really the story is much more one of self-censorship because of a very, very distinct and loud minority and much more one of compulsion than it is of cancellation. And so I think my kind of general take on it, and you'll see in the piece, is that it's not so much lots of postmodern professors attempting to tell students that there's no such thing as truth, which is causing speakers to be deplatformed in so much as it's the fact that there's a bunch of factors in the higher education system right now and young people's lives more generally that incentivize conformity. And why is that? What we can do about it is something that I'm exploring in a longer themed book. But this kind of piece is the first attempt to just kind of describe some of the basics of what I think most older liberals get wrong when they panic about wokeness amongst the younger generation. And the second piece is kind of the other part to that story, which is saying there are definite values that young people can learn from liberalism in the old school sense that they might actually gain something from when they go about attempting to advocate for their social justice causes. And I basically go in and dissect what I've learned personally from a lot of older people that I've been mentored by and learned from and some of the frustrations that I have with oftentimes those young people who have very, very good intentions, but can often forget principles and often confuse good intentions tensions with good outcomes. And so it's more kind of on this generational gap and then what that means for wokeness. And in the future, I would love to kind of explore what about the woke and the unwoke really kind of bring some of these debates to cultural kind of significance. Sahil Handa's articles called What the Woke Don't Get About the Old and What the Old Don't Get About the Woke were published by Persuasion. To learn more about the community we're building at Persuasion and to get similar articles directly into your inbox, head to www.persuasion.community. Today, I'm really honored to be joined by Douglas Alexander. Douglas is one of the most interesting thinkers about British and international politics. He has a bunch of distinctions. He was a senior cabinet minister 
in a bunch of Labour governments in the 2000s and 2010s under Tony Blair and under Gordon Brown. He was later the Shadow Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs. He now is teaching at the Harvard Kennedy School and at King's College in London. But he really is somebody who has deep roots in a working class constituency in Scotland, who has seen the transformation of that constituency, the way in which it has become harder and harder for the Labour Party to have standing there. And he has a set of really interesting thoughts about what that means for Democrats in the United States, how to think about a coronavirus pandemic and the way in which it might or might not. We have a little bit of a debate about that, re-establish science and experts as important in society. We discuss uh, the future of post-Brexit Britain, uh, international politics under Joe Biden. It's a very wide-ranging conversation, but one from which I personally learned a lot. I hope you enjoy it. Douglas Alexander, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. You said something very interesting to me while we were chatting and you know setting up the recording and so on, which is that, I forget how you put it, uh, Donald Trump is for Christmas, but Brexit is for the rest of the year. It was, you, you put it much better than, than, than I am struggling to put it. But you were suggesting that actually America may be turning a corner after Donald Trump, whereas Britain is going to deal with Brexit and the mess it leads for a very long time. Why? Well, I looked at the inauguration ceremony, if I'm honest, with a great sense of envy, not just observing a sense of America coming out of the darkness that only a couple of weeks before had seemed so very dark, but also the sense that America really does have the potential to clean up some of the mess that was created in 2016 with the departure of President Trump, whereas here in the United Kingdom, it feels like we are heading deeper into the mess that we created in 2016 in terms of the decision to leave the European Union. So you know what, let's cover both sides of this, because I actually think that the mood in America doesn't feel very optimistic. It's one of the strange things that, you know, the right feels apocalyptic because they lost and so on and so forth. And a scary number of Americans seem to believe that the election was stolen and so on. But the left is not feeling particularly optimistic either. You might think that, you know, we've gotten rid of Trump and free and fair elections. And in the end, even the Senate is under democratic control. The left would feel sort of upbeat. But there's this sense of the Republican Party is going to remain authoritarian forever. And, you know, half of the country is terrible. And obviously the trauma of January 6th and the assault of the Capitol has something to do with that. But I'm struck by the extent to which the prevailing mood on the American left is one of pessimism as well. So why does it look more optimistic from somebody like you who knows America very well, knows foreign policy very well, but is outside the country? Why does it look more optimistic? And then we'll come and indulge your pessimism about Britain. Well, firstly, it just feels great to be discussing a victory rather than explaining a defeat, because there have been too many defeats to the populace over recent years. So in that sense, I'll bank a victory any day and then recognise the pessimism that follows. And I truly understand why there is a sense of contingency about America's return, both to the international stage and return to democratic norms. Because as somebody who has studied in the United States, is fascinated by the country, visits regularly, I'm still traumatised by the fact that 10 million more Americans voted for Donald Trump in 2020 than voted in 2016. They didn't just see Trump in the White House and think that he was acceptable. They clearly thought he was preferable to Joe Biden. And that presents a pretty fundamental challenge to all of us who might have hoped that we were going to see a blue wave, a kind of 
moral repudiation of Trumpism in all of its horror. And actually, in that sense, I think the kind of humility that the Democrats are showing is really important because I still think those of us who would define ourselves as being on the centre-left of politics have some pretty searching answers to find about why so many working-class Americans and so many working-class people here in the United Kingdom have turned away from the traditional parties of the left over recent years and have been very willing to embrace a kind of xenophobic nationalist populism, albeit in different forms on both sides of the Atlantic. So, so perhaps we'll, we'll keep pushing Brexit off, as in fact the country did for a little while before finally succumbing to it. But I'd love to hear more about that topic. I mean, one of the big reasons why Boris Johnson won the last election quite handily in the United Kingdom is that the so-called red wall of Labour seats in the northeast of England fell to the Conservative Party, something that few people had expected. A secondary reason, which is a little bit older, but certainly helps to explain it as well, is that a lot of the Labour strongholds in Scotland have now fallen to the Scottish Nationalist Party and other parties. And I remember you talking about you know, as a former leader of the Scottish Labour Party, campaigning in your old constituency in Scotland. And if I remember right, you said that it felt like what you were offering to people culturally and the kind of moral appeal you were making to people just completely missed the cultural moment of where people's heads are at now in those parts of the country. So what explains the loss of the Red Wall, Labour's difficulty in Scotland and Britain? And then perhaps we can talk about what the equivalent might or might not be in the United States. Well, it did feel at times that we were offering people the chance to visit the local mining museum when they were all too busy packing their bags and heading for Euro Disney. You know, the Labour Party never does well when it seems like a historical reenactment society. And there were times when that felt to be the case. And that was partly informed by the judgments that I, along with other people, make. I remember very clearly in the general election of 2015, when I lost my seat to the Scottish Nationalists, being aware of the surging power of identity politics and the sense that we had, in my case, as in constituencies right across the country, 45% of the population who wanted to relitigate the referendum that they had lost the preceding year. This was a referendum on Scottish independence at the time. That's right. The previous year, there was a referendum on Scottish independence. The vote was 55% to remain within the United Kingdom, 45% in favour of seceding and establishing an independent sovereign state. That 45% stayed animated. And in that sense, they came out in huge numbers in the general election the year that followed. And in a first-past-the-post system, if you can command 45% of the vote in any constituency, you pretty much win every constituency, and that was ultimately what happened. But I remember campaigning door-to-door and thinking, what do we have in our kind of emotional locker to compete with the power of identity politics? And I did my best to reanimate a sense of class identity talking about a sense of solidarity, a shared experience of vulnerability and of solidarity by people who had built ships in the Clyde or made steel in Yorkshire or hewn coal in South Wales. My father is actually a minister in the Church of Scotland, and it felt to me like I was trying to persuade the congregation to sing the words of a hymn that they had long forgotten, that that language of class solidarity and identity really had lost its emotional power and its sense of relevance to the lives of the people in that area. 
And in that sense, some of the most compelling analysis I've read as to what happened in Scotland and then happened in the north of England, incidentally, I resist the terminology of red wall seats. It was invented by a conservative strategist. And I've yet to meet anybody who actually would identify as living in a red wall seat. They live in places like Darlington or Newcastle or wherever else. But the best analysis I've read is actually about the interaction of identity and political affiliation. And this basically, this theorist argues that we have two kinds of identity. We have an achieved identity and an assigned identity. And in the case of those seats in the central belt of Scotland that cradled the Industrial Revolution 100 years ago or 150 years ago, for the last 100 years, to be a working class Scot meant that you made things that mattered with your hands. It might be ships, it might be locomotives, it might be steel. But as well as that, you probably lived in a council house with a secure tenancy or you owned your own house for the first time in your family's history. You had a reasonable prospect that your kids were going to do better than yourself and you had a sense of place and belonging in the story of the country. And really the last 40 years of globalisation in a community like mine, which has suffered very real deindustrialization, has stripped away most of those achievements. And the effect of losing that achieved identity is not that you end up with no identity, but actually you revert to a deeper assigned identity. In Scotland's case, that's overwhelmingly well, you can take all these other achievements away, but I'm still Scottish, and that matters. In the case of America, you would know this better than I, it's often I'm an American, or sometimes I'm white. But people have defaulted to a deeper identity and given expression to that in their political choices. And that argues to me that if the Democrats are going to come back in a big way in state house elections or just to hold on to that tenuous grasp on the Senate or in Congress then actually we need to recognise there's a deficit of dignity as well as a deficit of income that is shaping how people vote on both sides of the Atlantic at the moment. There's so much in what you said. By the way, I make the distinction between earned and descriptive identity at some point in my last book, The People Versus Democracy, and I'm pretty sure that's because you put me onto it in the first lunch we ever shared many years ago. So I find it very important, very persuasive. I think there's a couple of interesting things in what you're saying to go back to the historical reenactment society, you know, there's a lot of people who argue that the way to deal with the rise of, especially the populist right, and the way to deal with the primacy that cultural questions now take in our politics is to emphasize a bigger economic cleavage. That if you don't want these cultural cleavages to be the driving definitions of politics, if you don't want to give the populist right a leg up and being able to exploit them, you've got to make radical economic demands and lean into class identity. And then people will shift their attention back to economic issues on which the left sort of has better ground to stand or something like that. It strikes me in light of what you're saying that that might be naive. It might be naive in the United Kingdom, which has a much deeper sense of class than the United States and a much deeper historical reservoir of those symbols. And yet, as you're saying, the local mining museum doesn't interest people anymore. It would be even harder in the United States, where you know the Democratic Party has never been as clearly a labor movement and as clearly a trade unionist movement, as clearly a movement that can draw on that kind of collective identity as labor has been in Britain. So the first question, I guess, is do you think that that prescription that a lot of political scientists and some political strategists, perhaps parts of a further left from Corbyn in certain ways to Bernie in his 2016 form at least, give 
Do you think that that's electorally misguided? I think it is electorally misguided, yes, undoubtedly. The Labour Party, certainly here in the United Kingdom, has always been at its strongest when it is at ease in the future, to quote that old Bill Clinton line, that we needed to get back into the future business. And the reality is, in our 1945 manifesto, it was called Let Us Face the Future. I think that the only place for the centre-left to stand with integrity is the promise of leading and ushering all of us forward to a better tomorrow, rather than disingenuously promising a better yesterday. Now, I don't underestimate the emotional power of the appeal of a better yesterday. Make America great again. Take back control. Again and back are the two most powerful words in both of those winning slogans. Take back control being the slogan of the Brexit campaign in 2016. The Leave campaign in 2016, which took Britain out of the European Union, was a powerful, powerful weaponization of nostalgia, which was a central aspect of that campaign. So in that sense, I think the real challenge for the centre-left and for liberal Democrats across the spectrum is how do you make people feel safe and comfortable with their place in a future? And as I look back on my time as a new Labour cabinet member and elected representative, I think we underestimated the jeopardy that many people felt at the prospect of the scale of change that we discussed with enthusiasm and excitement. If you like, we over-indexed the opportunity associated with globalisation and we under-indexed the sense of jeopardy that people felt. And in that sense, I think the real challenge for Democrats or for Labour politicians on this side of the Atlantic in the United Kingdom is to be able to articulate a politics that allows people to live on their dreams and their hopes for the future more than their memories of the past. So how do we do that? I mean, I took your distinction between the earned and ascriptive identity seriously. I reflected on it in the book. I had a bunch of policy suggestions about how we might be able to instill more of an earned identity in people. But, you know, looking back at it, I'm not sure how convinced I myself am. I think it falls into the category of a lot of policy analysis where it's comparatively easy to point out a deep problem that you're facing. And all of the solutions to it that you are able to dream up are either perfectly sensible and reasonable and perhaps even practicable, but wouldn't make all that big a difference. Or they might make a difference, but they're so unrealistic that they're never going to happen in the first place. So are we sort of at the mercy of historical forces here? And we just have to hope that there will be some transformation in economic circumstance that makes people feel this earned identity again? Are you more optimistic than I am about being able to find policies that instill those earned identities? Or is that just not going to be there? And we have to figure out how to deal with a world in which a scriptive identity is a bigger factor and a bigger driver than earned identity? No, I'm more optimistic because I think the first step to solving any problem is identifying the essence of that problem. And I think for too long, the liberal left has been comfortable with a discourse around economic inequality and has been deaf to people's pleas around status hunger or dignity. And in that sense, I think we can only prevail by recognizing that there's both an economic gap and an empathy gap. And if you look back at where did that class identity that is now a feature of history, where was that forged? It was forged in large industrial workplaces. It was forged in the shared experience of shared religious worship. It was forged in the solidarity and commonality of the trade union movement. You know, in Britain, we're 79% a services-based economy these days. 
we're not going back to large industrial workplaces with mass meetings, trade union organisation and all of the trappings that defined a labour history in the 20th century. So actually, I think we need to ask ourselves, where are the other places and spaces, both in our economy and in our society, in which we can meet in mutual vulnerability, but mutual respect? And in that sense, I want a society not where one section of society looks down on another, or one section of society looks up at another, but where, with a greater degree of equality, we can look along at each other. And actually what we've seen is a significant reduction in those places and spaces. Pope Francis actually talks about creating a culture of encounter. And I think that's a brilliant description of what we need if we're going to close the empathy gap. We need to actively and consciously work to create contexts and spaces in which people's dignity can be respected and people can be heard and seen. I often see the Brexit vote in the United Kingdom as being almost a primal scream for recognition. I matter, my community matters, hear me and see me for what I am. And in that sense, I think we need better answers to that questions than historically the left's been willing to provide. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of resistance to ways of trying to at least model the politics of encounter, especially in the United States. I mean, I'm both struck by the extent to which a lot of social circles in the United States are socially self-segregated. I have a very diverse set of friends and acquaintances in ethnic terms. I have very few friends and acquaintances in the United States who didn't go to an elite college and who likely didn't even get a graduate degree at an elite college. And I think that's true of a huge percentage of the media class, of politicians, of their consultants, and so on. And that makes it easy to have that empathy gap. And I think there is a sort of temptation to actually say, if you are on the wrong side of politics, and certainly if you have any kind of sympathy for Donald Trump, then you're a bad person. I shouldn't want to encounter you. So how do you do that as a political leader? I mean, I think Joe Biden, in many ways, would agree with all of this. And I think he has tried to model it in his political campaign. How much of a difference is that going to make? Or to put it in more crude terms, how optimistic are you that four years of Joe Biden in office might make people a little bit more hurt, might dampen down the political temperature and might put us in a better position? Yeah, I think it's hard to think of an example of a politician better suited to try and close the empathy gap than Joe Biden. His capacity for extraordinary emotional connection to large audiences and to individuals is the thing of legend. But I think we can't place the responsibility on the individual when in fact it is a structural feature of our society and of our politics. And so I think actually we need to look in a more structured way at what we could do. I absolutely take your point, yes, if I had a pound for everybody who was within my social circle who said to me after the Leave vote in the referendum in 2016, but I didn't know anybody who voted Leave, I would be a very rich man. But that was the problem. The fact that we were living such parallel, segregated lives. And actually, one of the great ironies is, um, it's a commonplace allegation in Britain, and I'm sure it's true in the United States as well, that politicians are hopelessly out of touch. One of the things I found after I lost my seat was how much I missed meeting people who were not like me every single week. Because that is the daily fear of politicians. You're meeting people in supermarkets, in 
weekly surgeries, you're meeting people on buses who want to talk to you, you're meeting a whole range of people. And if you like the speed and ease with which you can find yourself in a kind of educated professional ghetto where you only meet other credentialed kind of qualified individuals was a revelation to me after 18 years in the parliament where it was just to me commonplace that you were meeting people. So maybe actually there's some things we can learn from politicians. I'm increasingly interested in the idea of citizens' juries because they're doing some really extraordinary work here in the United Kingdom. And I started, if not sceptical, then at least curious as to whether they could be part of the answer. What my experience of them has shown me is that politicians have lost a lot of credibility as the brokers of diverse opinions. And the structure of these community assemblies or citizens' juries where you get a representative cross-sample, let's say 100 people who look and sound like Britain in terms of class demographics, education, etc. You then put in front of them both experts and advocates in a structured series of conversations and actually watch what happens. And nine times out of ten, people don't leave more polarised and divided. But actually, they find common ground and come together. But it's almost they need to be persuaded to leave their armour at the door and a structured process like that involving non-partisan experts actually facilitates that. So I think there are new models that we need to look at in terms of deliberative democracy, and we've got to figure out what we can do to try and scale that in a big way. I am a critic of ways in which parts of a political class have fewer organic links to their communities than we did in the past and the way in which often they are shaped by having gone to the best colleges and having lived in a big metropolitan centers before we go back to some constituency and so on. But I think I agree with you that when I look at the other influential people in society, whether it is the people writing the newspaper articles and headlines, whether it's university professors, whether it is the big CEOs and you know the C-suite of the biggest companies, they probably are much more socially and ideologically insulated than even the least in touch politician. This is one of the most fascinating questions at the moment, which is what do we actually want from our elected representatives? Because in some ways, I lived that every day for 18 years. The area in Renfrewshire that I represented, I'd grown up in the local community. My parents still live there. I went to local schools. But then ultimately, I ended up going to university, studying in the United States. I had that experience of a very privileged education. And I was of the generation that thought there's an inherent merit in understanding the world if you want to change it. But with humility, I say now to students at the Kennedy School, if you think for a minute an elite education like that provided at the Kennedy School qualifies you to run for elected office, most of the time it proves to be more of a barrier than a bridge to popular support. And I say that as somebody who still inherently believes, as a kind of believer in the enlightenment of Scottish invention, as far as we're concerned, that that kind of education matters. But what I say to those students is, first of all, it doesn't entitle you to anything. And secondly, you should match your academic education with moral education. If you haven't endured personal hardship or suffering yourself, put yourselves in circumstances where you encounter the suffering of others, because actually it will morally deepen you, it will challenge you, and it will actually make you a much better politician, I would argue, than believing that somehow a credentialed piece of paper from an Ivy League school qualifies you to find the answers to the world's problems. Very interesting. Yeah, it makes me think of 
a line by the great Bulgarian intellectual Ivan Krushtev, who's been on a past episode of his podcast, who says that in Central and Eastern Europe, if you wanted to be elected to high office in the 1990s, it was a matter of being able to represent the country in a way that proved that it could have an eye-level conversation and be worthy of respect from the West. What you wanted is somebody who had been educated in England or in the United States, who spoke good English, who could show to the West that Bulgaria or Poland or Romania were civilized countries with a deep culture and history and that they shouldn't look down on them. And 10 years later, because many of those countries still feel that a lot of people in the West look down on them in one way or another, that's gone away. And they feel like, you know, if you speak perfect English and you've studied in the West, once you're done being leader here, you can go off and make a lot of money around the world and live in London or New York City. No, no, no. We want somebody who doesn't speak a damn word of English, who may not know the world very well, but his fate is bound to ours, right? Like, even once he stops being the prime minister, being the president, you know, he's going to be stuck in this country. And so he has some interest in making this country better. And almost perversely, I think that was part of Trump's appeal, that nobody believed he was sitting with a cadre of advisors deciding what to tweet at 4am. And if you like, what many of us felt to be repellent to a lot of voters was a mark of authenticity. If you like, the bug was the feature as far as they were concerned. And the fact he broke so many of the conventional rules of decency, civility, courtesy was for them evidence of a raw authenticity that they had an interest in. So in that sense, I think that's absolutely true. But I also think we've got to ask ourselves, what do we want from our elected politicians? Because a couple of reasons I'm hopeful. One is I think that the kind of authoritarian populists have had a very bad crisis, that a politics of anger has been shown to be inadequate when what the public want are decent answers in the face of a pandemic. And in that sense, it was here in Britain that Michael Gove issued those fateful words, this country's had enough of experts. I can promise you, Yasha, this country has not had enough of experts as we are developing vaccines and trying to come back from the horrors of 100,000 deaths. So optimistically, I think, if you like, it has recredentialed the value and virtue of education and competence in the minds of the public in a way that the election of someone like Boris Johnson before the pandemic evidenced a basic sense that people thought it would be quite good fun. It would be a bit of a laugh having a cheerer-upper as prime minister. And we've been reminded in a pretty brutal way here in the United Kingdom that politics and government in particular can be a very serious business. So on one hand, I think the pandemic could lead to a resetting in terms of competence and what that means. And secondly, I think the terrible events of the 6th of January horrific though they were to observe, will, I believe, toxify Donald Trump in the eyes of history in a way that, without those terrible events, was much less certain. I've made this point on this podcast a few weeks ago that I am very grateful for January 6th in a very specific sense, which is that it will cement the legacy of Donald Trump as what it should be. You know, I always had this fear that 50 or 100 years from now, people would look back at Donald Trump as this very entertaining, slightly strange, larger than life, only in America figure. And some of the damage he did would be hard to explain because it's complicated and intricate. I think those pictures from January 6th are going to be in school books 50 or 100 years from now, and they make it easy for a teacher to explain 
what and who Trump was and how it ended. The only problem with speaking to Douglas is that we often end up agreeing too much. Or I at least definitely end up agreeing with you too much. I don't know about you with me. But I think I might disagree about you on experts in the pandemic. So I agree that the blithe dismissal of experts, we've had enough of experts, is temperamentally out of keeping with this political moment. And that the incompetence of Donald Trump, who didn't even try to have any kind of coherent response to the coronavirus, and to some extent, the sort of differing and lack of earnestness of Boris Johnson has also harmed him. At the same time, it's not clear to me that experts have had a very good crisis. And perhaps it feels differently in Britain than the United States. But in the US, the World Health Organization was very late in acknowledging the severity of the crisis, in part because it was politically compromised. The CDC messed up testing at the beginning of a pandemic in a truly shocking way that was due to failings of career staff rather than the Trump administration. Having a very competent administration may have helped, but quite clearly from the detailed reporting on it, the cause of it was with misjudgments in the career staff. We had health experts telling us for months that masks didn't work because they were engaged in a misguided form of political communication because they were trying to save masks for hospital staff and so on, very understandably, not thinking about, for example, the fact that we could ramp up production of masks if it became clear that we should just all be wearing masks and so on. I mean, real misjudgment. We had, I think, a very damaging letter by a public health expert saying that the mask protests, uh, which could have been predicted at the time to lead to a surge in cases, even if we got lucky and in the end there's an argument that they didn't, were not just justifiable on moral grounds, but they were in fact good for public health. And then we've had a debate about the distribution of vaccines in which the key advisory committee of the CDC here in the United States endorsed a course of action of prioritizing essential workers over the elderly, even though according to its own models, it would lead to a substantial increase in the number of deaths on very confused ethical grounds. So when I look at all of that, I personally... I'm not saying that I'm endorsing what you and my friend, Mr. Gove, said in the past, uh, or I guess you would have to call him uh, your honorable friend back when you were in parliament, but I'm more sympathetic to that position now than I was a year ago. I mean, I think the last year has shown a quite substantial failure of experts. Now, it's also shown a success of capitalism, actually, a success of science, right? A success of research. I mean, the vaccine is an incredible achievement. The fact that our production chain hasn't broken down, I think, is a sign of resilience of our economic system. There's a lot of things to be positive about. But the experts, I don't know. I'm more skeptical of them than I was a year ago. Let me try my best to answer what was a long and damning charge sheet that you've laid before the experts. Firstly, I would say I genuinely believe in the transformative power of politics. I was speaking to somebody this morning who said, what will be on your gravestone? Will it be, you know, teacher or politician? It's going to be a politician because it marked and shaped me. So I start with an innate belief in politics. Why am I optimistic? Because I think science is going to rescue us from this pandemic more effectively than politics. And it grieves me to acknowledge that, but I absolutely believe it. And to give credence to that, I wrote an article in the Times here in the United Kingdom at the start of the pandemic saying, not least because of my dislike of populist politics, that I was no fan of either Boris Johnson or Nicola Sturgeon in Scotland, but that I was willing them on every step of the way as a citizen. I really wanted them to get it right. And I remember writing, I'm glad we live in a country where the chief medical officer and the chief scientific officer will be advising the respective governments to get it right. And actually, the British state and the Scottish government has had a pretty horrendous 
COVID crisis, 100,000 deaths, a terrible kind of record of failure of what should be an effective functioning state machinery. So I'm not in any way dismissing the points that you made. But actually, this week in the Atlantic Monthly, Tom McTague, who's one of our best journalists here in the United Kingdom, wrote, I thought, a genuinely brilliant article, which is quite challenging in terms of what it holds out for the future of Boris Johnson, where he said, what you experience is not what you remember. And actually, what you remember is shaped by the post-crisis story more than the experience of the crisis in your own um, head. And he was basically arguing, whoever owns the post-crisis common sense owns the political dividend coming out of this crisis. And in that sense, I think that that's still up for grabs on both sides of the Atlantic. But I would suggest to you respectfully that despite all of those manifest failures of the experts, the work on vaccines is going to be what people remember got us from where we are today to a different and hopefully rapid return to a greater degree of normality in the future. It won't be attributed to the success of governments or politicians, but it will be attributed to the success of scientists. And in the sense, the post-crisis narrative is, I think, going to be very positive for science, very positive for experts, and pretty damning for governments. So I guess I would cleave it in a slightly different way. I think you are right that it'll be very good for science. And I think it'll hopefully be very good for vaccines. You know, I actually think that one of the reasons why we didn't have such strong anti-vaccine sentiment for decades in the middle of the 20th century is that people had the experience of deadly diseases, diseases that crippled and deeply imperiled children, suddenly dropping out of existence because of the rollout of vaccines. And I think, thankfully, we haven't had to have that experience for decades. But now that we're going to go back to, you know, you take the vaccine and a month later, you can pretty safely walk around the world. It will instill faith in vaccines again. And I do hope that it will instill gratitude in science and hopefully good funding for this kind of science that can save us in these situations. I would put the experts in the other side of the equation, though. I don't think that at least in the United States, or for that matter in Britain, people will come out of this crisis with a deeper trust in experts. I think they will come out of this crisis with a sense that the experts didn't really know what was going on, that the advice was deeply politically inflected in any case, and that if somebody tells you, hey, I've managed to develop a vaccine, trust them. If somebody tells you, I'm an epidemiologist, I get to tell you what to do, they're going to impolitely disagree. But the rehabilitation of science in the public consciousness is for me an extraordinarily precious dividend of this terrible year. Because taking a wider context, let's look at the big crises of this century. I think one of the effects of the global financial crisis was to trash the public's trust in the powerful, in bankers, in experts, in politicians. And actually their view, understandably, was if you guys were so smart, and it was often guys, if you guys were so smart, why didn't you see the banking crisis coming? And why weren't the bankers punished? And why in the UK's case are we paying for it through austerity? And in that sense, I don't think there will be a similar public sentiment after COVID. I think actually people will have a much deeper respect for science coming out of this than we went into it. And when we anticipate what's the next big public policy challenge, planetary challenge that we face, climate change, the rehabilitation of science in the public mind is incredibly important. Because actually, what's the biggest fundamental difference between COVID and the climate crisis? There's no peak. 
climate crisis, it's it's linear in its in and and absolute in its risks. So, so what do you think? I mean, I've been I've been incoherently thinking about what the implication of this past pandemic year is on climate change. And again, I think I take a more pessimistic view. This is refreshing, by the way, because I feel like I made my mark as a pessimist worrying about the stability of democracy before anybody else. And then in the last year or so, I've been more optimistic when a lot of people, and it's felt very unaccustomed. And now somehow in our conversation, you'll be optimist and I'm a pessimist. So I'm, I'm back in the place of comfort and I want to thank you for it. But I think on climate change, again, this year has made me very pessimistic. I mean, it made me think, first of all, that people would much rather accept a significant death toll and accept real risks to themselves and their loved ones than to adapt their style of life significantly. Secondly, that the ability of summoning collective action in much of the world is very, very limited, even when the stakes are pretty existential. And then, as you're saying, if you add to that, that at least, quote unquote, with the coronavirus, you had a real moment of crisis that would have forced action, right? So, oh my God, the hospitals are going to run out of space. With climate change, we likely won't have that, right? It is a slow rolling crisis in which the problems mount over time. There's never going to be the day when it's like, well, now or never, we got to do something. So you put those three factors together. And at this point, my best guess is we're never going to do anything much about climate change. If you are unfamiliar adopting the persona of being the pessimist after recent months, I'm equally unfamiliar being the optimist. It's not often that Presbyterian Scottish men are confused with a ray of sunshine, but I shall do my best. I am genuinely more optimistic. Why? Firstly, because I think our shared vulnerability has been reminded to all of us by the effect of the pandemic. And in that sense, up until then, maybe some of the concerns being expressed about the risk to the planet were seen as more ephemeral or academic. I think all of us, wherever we live, however privileged our lives, have been reminded of our innate vulnerability. And I think that is relevant. Secondly, I think it would have been very easy for climate to go onto the back burner during the last difficult 12 months. And I'm struck both in the public policy space and in the world of commerce, the extent to which the movement towards net zero has gained momentum rather than lost momentum. And I was actually part of the British ministerial delegation in Copenhagen in 2009 when we abjectly failed to bring the world together. 2015 after that, what we saw was Paris succeeding where we'd failed in Copenhagen. And if I had to offer a political perspective on why that happened was what they got right before Paris and we failed to do before Copenhagen was to basically align the United States, the European Union and China before the rest of the world. And actually, Again, with Joe Biden's election as president, I'm incredibly optimistic that those pieces of the jigsaw are coming back together for the COP26 meeting in Glasgow in November. So I'm really optimistic that we will see governmental action at the level that is required. But actually, as I spend more time in the world of commerce and learn about its relationship with climate change, the really big change comes when you combine technology and culture. And it feels to me that, if you like, there is a coincidence of governmental action, culture and technology that holds out the prospect that we could actually transform our economies over the next 30 years. And I certainly haven't encountered a moment like that in my lifetime politically. Of course, that's contingent. We could mess it up. But but I feel that literally the stars are aligning for much more rapid progress than we could have imagined even a few months ago. 
to me, ultimately, the question is, can we deal with climate change without extreme collective political action that requires a real change of lifestyle or sacrifices from people? I think as long as we try to go for that, we're going to run up against a brick wall. Now, I think you're right that there is reason to be optimistic, but we can. And one of the best pieces of evidence for that is that the price of renewable energies has plummeted over the last decade, far faster than anybody predicted. And once the price of that is low enough, there's just an incentive for everybody to shift to renewable energies because it's cheaper at some point than fossil fuels. And there's a bunch of other technological advances we might make where maybe technologies of carbon capture that become commercially viable and so on and so forth. I think all of that is realistic. If we get it wrong and we wind up with a pretty catastrophic development of climate, will we then be able to agree on extreme collective action to right the ship at the last moment? That I think I remain pessimistic about in light of this pandemic. I promised you that we would talk about Brexit at the beginning, and I promised listeners that we would talk about Brexit at the very beginning of a conversation. We haven't gotten back to it. It's a funny story, isn't it? Because it dominated the news, at least in Britain and the European Union, throughout the second half of 2016, 2017, 2018. It really was no other story. And in part because of COVID, it's now sort of gone away. I have to say there was a very strange historical irony from the fact that people were warning about all of the disruptions for trade and other things from Brexit, and that perhaps if Britain crashed out of the European Union without some kind of agreement, then on the first day that Britain has left the EU, there might be no flights between Britain and the European continent because of the lacking regulations and papers and so on. And that turned out to be true because of the new strain of a virus that was discovered in Britain. So actually, on January 1st of this year, there's barely any flights between Heathrow and European airports for reasons that had nothing to do with Brexit, which is one of the very strange ironies in recent history. Why should we still care about Brexit? Why is this something that poses a real problem to Britain? And why is it something that listeners outside Britain should pay attention to and worry about? Well, firstly, what were the roots of that vote in 2016 that meant that by 52 to 48% here in the United Kingdom, people voted to leave? I actually think there is a great deal in common with the election of Donald Trump, a whole series of contingencies and unusual circumstances, but really the confluence of three forces that were present on both sides of the Atlantic, economic anger, cultural anxiety, and political alienation. And those three forces were sufficient to collectively take Britain out of the European Union. Now, cards on the table, I think it is extraordinary act of self-harm by the United Kingdom to have made that choice at that time, and I remain of that view. And you're right, there was then a series of difficult negotiations. In a previous life, I was the British Minister of Trade, Investment and Foreign Affairs. And what that taught me was that there's really two attributes that matter in any trade negotiations. There's psychology and arithmetic. And what we ultimately ended up with in the Brexit deal that was delivered on Christmas Eve and that was given expression on the 31st of December was deeply predictable. It was pretty much what Europe wanted Britain to accept. First of all, the European single market, up to 500 million consumers, so they prevailed on the arithmetic. And secondly, on the psychology, Britain needed a deal much more than the European Union needed a deal, so we basically signed on the dotted line. So where we've ended up is a deal which, frankly, as you say, has now moved from the front pages to the business pages. It's not main news in Britain, 
and it's smothered under the horrible blanket of the coronavirus crisis. But we've ended up with a much harder Brexit than people yet realise. And actually, my prediction is that politics in the future in Britain for the coming years will largely be shaped by attempts to improve a pretty bad deal rather than to rejoin the European Union. Keir Stammer's made clear on behalf of the Labour Party is no intention of immediately seeking to rejoin the European Union. So I think there will be a lot of debate about trying to incrementally improve a pretty tough deal with the European Union. Why should people around the world care? Because ultimately, who were the people who were cheering Britain leaving the European Union? Outside of Nigel Farage and Boris Johnson and Donald Trump, probably Vladimir Putin, Kim Il-jung, and apart from that, I can't think of any democratically elected leader. It was a defeat for the West, and it was a defeat for the collective strength of the West. And in that sense, Britain finding its way back to relevance, engagement, and partnership with our friends and colleagues in the continent of Europe and more broadly, we've all got a stake in. And actually, in this year of 2021, we will, in the United Kingdom, host the G7 meeting taking place in June in Cornwall. And then we'll have that COP26 meeting in November in Glasgow. They will flatter the United Kingdom in its belief that we are still at the centre of world events. But Brexit makes us harder for us to continue to be central to those events over the longer term. And in that sense, I wish that we hadn't made that choice. We now have to make the best of it. But whether Britain shows up in the international issues that are going to affect us, whether that's pandemic response or climate change or our collective security, matters for more than the people on these islands. Tell us just a little bit about what the deal has actually changed, what is different now than it was before, and why that's not just damage to Britain. You know, why is it that that damages the West as a whole, or why is it that that damages countries outside of Britain? You know, if you wanted to have a reductionist read of it, you might say, well, look, I mean, Britain sort of shot itself in the foot a little bit, and it probably is going to end up being a little bit less affluent, and perhaps it means that the European Union is going to be a little bit more affluent, or perhaps the United States can pick up some of the trade that Britain had with Europe and export a little bit of extra goods to the EU, which might help it sort of close a tiny piece of its trade deficit. It's a rearrangement of a chair. So from a British perspective, this is all very silly. So why is it damaging to Britain? Why is it damaging to other countries? Why it's damaging to Britain is exactly as you described, that in the trade-off between sovereignty and prosperity, understandably, given the position that Boris Johnson had taken, he preferenced sovereignty at every stage of these negotiations. So if you read the 1,200 pages, we managed to secure the absence of tariffs on manufactured goods, which really matters, for example, for the car industry in the United Kingdom. But the absence of quotas and tariffs is about it. 79% of the UK economy is services, and the 1,200 pages hardly make any reference to the services industry at all. So ultimately, there's going to be a lot more hassle involved in British business, a lot more red tape in doing business with our friends and colleagues in Europe. And even at an individual level, it means we've been dumped out of, for example, the Erasmus scheme of young people who were previously able to study across Europe. You're going to need visas for a lot more business travel across Europe. It's just a frictionful exit in a way that it needn't have been. Why does it matter to the rest of the world? Because basically... It feels to me that one of Joe Biden's biggest challenges internationally is to build international alliances in a way that was not the hallmark of the Trump presidency, where America first rapidly became America alone. 
And actually, given the geopolitical struggle that's now underway between China and the United States, whether the United Kingdom, whether the European Union are trusted and reliable partners who show up and find common cause or retreat into a vaccine nationalism or an economic nationalism really matters. I think all of us are stronger than any of us. And I wouldn't overestimate the United Kingdom's relevance, but equally I wouldn't underestimate it. It's really important to my mind that if we are going to rebuild people's confidence in our capacity to work together internationally, then actually we should see Brexit as a warning rather than as a model. That's a very interesting point, I think. Just in closing, because you've covered a lot of great things, you're in lockdown Britain at the moment. We were talking before the conversation about the sense that the end is now in sight, in a way. I mean, we are having vaccines that work, which we didn't know would be the case for sure three or four months ago. Actually, Britain is doing quite well at vaccinating a large percentage of the population. And yet something about this round of lockdowns feels heavier. And somehow there seems to be a little bit less hope now than there was a few months ago. Why is that? I think there's a couple of reasons. I think socially, it's just been a long time since a lot of us, certainly in the United Kingdom, have been able to be out in a pub, talking to friends, in social gatherings, family gatherings, parties, whatever. Those are where we replenish ourselves as human beings. And so a lot of us feel depleted by the absence of that everyday social contact. So I think there's a social dimension, which means this just weighs a bit more heavily on people's consciousness. I think, secondly, there was quite a burst of intellectual energy last spring, so now eight or nine months ago, when COVID broke upon us. We were all trying to figure out what this meant for ourselves and for our families, for our countries, and there was quite a live intellectual debate about what the new normal would look like, whether we could work remotely, what does this mean for cities, what does this mean for our relationships. My sense is that conversation's moved on to the back burner as well, as people have kind of got their head down and just thought, let's get through it. And again, I think the British experience is relevant here. You know, many people in Britain started last spring talking about the blitz spirit. And one of the problems for Britain, which helps explain Brexit, is a constant reference point of the Second World War in our popular culture. So people talked a lot about a blitz spirit, what it was like in Britain in 1940 when Britain stood alone facing the Luftwaffe's bombs. And actually, I think the relevant analogy for the Second World War is this. Even as those bombs were falling in the United Kingdom, Beveridge was writing his report that gave birth to a National Health Service. He didn't wait until after the crisis to do the intellectual heavy lifting of saying, what does a better tomorrow look like? And in that sense, I hope that whether it's all the good work you're doing in the United States or people are doing here in the United Kingdom, we don't put on pause the kind of thinking we need to learn the right lessons, develop the right stories and shape the common sense for what comes after this crisis until the crisis is over. That's the task for now. And in that sense, that's what I try and console myself with when I think, well, I'd really rather be down the pub talking to my friends to think, well, actually, this is an opportunity for us. And if we don't get our story right, then we know that there are nativists and nationalists, there are populists and reactionaries who will seek to shape the common sense in a way that preferences their political parties and their political choices in the future. Well, on that wonderful exhortation to all of us to think through what the world after 
COVID might look like. Douglas Alexander, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be liked, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.